Father, thanks so much for giving us a gorgeous day out and for bringing us safely to your house. Today, open our hearts as we study this topic of our greatest enemy, and I pray that you give us understanding. And thank you for your provision and your Son who gives us victory over all the powers of Satan and over all the powers of hell. Thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen. Um, by the way, uh, Don ordered the Standing Strong books and he ran out of them last week. So I think he ordered some more. So you, if you want the book Standing Strong, which is how to meet the devil or how to meet the enemy. Um, anybody get that in here? You got it? All right. They got it. So, yeah, it's there. So uh, hopefully Don ordered some more of them so you can stop by the books Crossroads, I guess, and pick up your copy if you want it. All right, today we are studying the topic of Satan, beginning our topic um, of Satan and what he is, what he does, and his activities. Um, When we look at Satan, it's interesting. Um, I don't know, it's sort of hard to understand why we have to start here, but I guess if you look at our society, it's true. When you look at Satan, what does the world think of a personal devil? They don't. Yeah, the the say the, the handouts. This one that I just picked up from the table doesn't have any other names. What do you have? It starts out with names and titles. This is this is the one here. <coughs> Got it. All right. Okay. All right. Here's uh here's some extras here. Of, yeah. How's last week's? All right. That's what you get when you miss a week, see? You get all messed up, mixed up. That's why it's important to be here every week. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> when you look at Satan, the world basically denies his existence. And you, or if they, if they have him, they sort of see him as, a, as totally different than what the Bible presents. All right? Um, most people don't believe in a personal devil. They believe there is such a thing as evil in the world. But as far as there being a personal being of malevolence, they don't believe that. Um, when I look at the cartoons and you look at uh, you know, Bugs Bunny and things like that, I remember growing up looking at Bugs Bunny. You see the devil always in a red suit with a pitchfork, right? Fork tail, horns on him. Um, that's really not the picture of Satan as you see in the scripture. Um, liberals almost universally deny the existence of a personal devil. They might want to say there might be a God out there or, or the possibility of a God, but when it comes down to an actually a personal devil, a personal being that is interested in our destruction, they deny that. How many of you have heard a sermon on the devil in your life? A sermon on Satan. Oh, if you go in satanic circles... Yeah. Anybody ever hear a sermon on Satan? No, I mean, he's referenced, and, and most of us would believe in him, right? But a lot of people don't talk about him. You hear spiritual warfare and things like that, but you don't, you know, the idea of what is the devil like or what is he up to, we don't talk much about that. Um, and, of course, society denies a personal devil. A lot of the TV shows that you see today. Um, have a caricature of Satan. One of them is, uh, hopefully you didn't watch it. I actually have to admit I watched an episode of this. It was, for my curiosity, The Reaper. You ever see that? You don't need to see it. Don't watch it. Um, But it's a caricature of Satan who is the 
jailer who's the warden of hell, basically. And the idea is he has to con this young man into helping him capture escaped souls from hell. All right, that's the whole premise of the show. Look, folks, devil is not in charge of hell. Satan is not in charge of hell. Satan is probably not anywhere near hell, quite honestly, because it's going to be his eternal destiny, not the current hell, but the lake of fire will be. He is not the jailer of hell. He's not the one in charge of hell. He's going to be an inmate someday. But his existence is denied by the world. We just don't talk too much about a personal devil. Or if we do, we have a total misunderstanding of what the personal devil is like. So that's what we're trying to look at here, is what is he like? Well, the Bible says he exists. The Bible makes it very clear that Satan does exist. If you look at the Old Testament, he's mentioned at least seven of the Old Testament books. Okay. Right. Right. Yes. Hell and the, hell and the lake of fire are two different places. Remember, it says in Revelation that death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. All right. So, yeah, hell today is a temporary holding place. All right. It's not the eternal destiny. All so right. The judgment has passed, but the sentence has been. Has not been carried out yet. Um, because Christ on the cross. No, what what it is, if, if you think about it, when a person goes to hell today, they're going to the local county jail. All right, um, the ju- the trial is coming up. That's the great white throne. After which they will be sentenced to the eternal penitentiary, the lake of fire. So they're still like Oh yeah, this is not a place you want to go. Um, hell is a very bad place. You can see that in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's a place of fire, a place of torment. Um, you don't want to go there. It is not a pleasant place to be. Um, but it's not the eternal state. And the reason it's not the eternal state is because at the great white throne, God's going to judge all of a person's sin. Not only what they've done in life, but all their influence that lived on. They're going to get a full accounting of that. And then they get their eternal sentence in the lake of fire. Make any sense? It's two different places. It's not the same place. All right. Um, but when you look at the Old Testament, Satan is mentioned in seven of the Old Testament books. Nineteen of the twenty-seven New Testament books refer to him. All the authors refer to him. Christ refers to him on multiple occasions. Um, Matthew four, he says he talks to Satan directly right in the temptation. Satan came to tempt the Lord. Um, in uh, Matthew twenty-five forty-one, he talks about the everlasting fire prepared for the Satan and his angels. In Matthew 16, he says, Get thee behind me, Satan, when he's talking to Peter. Alright, because Peter, Peter's uh, um, resistance to the plan of God was, was really um, instigated by Satan in that respect. John 8, 44, he's called a father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. Alright, so Christ very, very explicitly talks of him. He is a real figure. He is a real being. All right, he's the arch enemy of God throughout the Scripture. He first appeared in the garden, right? Genesis chapter 3 appears in the garden to tempt Eve. And the last mention of him, thankfully, is Revelation 20. And why is it the last mention of him? Because we've got Revelation 21 and 22 that don't mention a devil. And I sort of like the way Vance Havner put it. He says, you don't have a devil on the first two chapters and there's no devil in the last two chapters. 
So God does take care of Satan. He is not an omnipotent being. He is limited. And we're going to talk about that. Where did he come from, his origin? Well, the Bible talks about this a little bit, and I'd like to look at Ezekiel 28 here. This is one of the two very important passages in the Old Testament regarding the uh, origin of the devil, origin of Satan. And uh, it says in Ezekiel 28, 11, starting 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Um, Ezekiel is given a prophecy against the Tyre. In this case, it's the king of Tyre. Now, uh, as you look back through the Old Testament history, Tyre was modern-day Phoenicia, or well, modern-day Lebanon, actually. It was ancient Phoenicia. And what were the Phoenicians known, about, known for? What are they known for? Any historians? Sailing, Sailing commerce. Um, the city of Tyre is where modern-day Beirut is. All right, near modern-day Beirut is where Tyre was, and they were known for their seafaring. They were known for their trading on the seas. And uh, Ezekiel is told to give a prophecy against the king of Tyre. Now, when we start looking at this, one of the things to understand when you look at Old Testament prophecy is sometimes you have what we call um, a, a double fulfillment aspect of it. There's an immediate object, but behind the immediate object, there is another object that is being spoken of as well. And you see this often in Old Testament prophecy. And the way you sort this out is you have to ask yourself, is everything being said towards this, in this case, the king of Tyre, could that be said of a human king? And when you look at that, some can, some cannot. So you know that there's a double meaning there. All right. The same thing is going to happen when we look at Isaiah 14. You see a double meaning. Although God is addressing, in essence, the king of Tyre, behind the king of Tyre there is someone else that is there. The same thing in the um, Revelation chapter 12, right? You have the Antichrist, but who's behind Antichrist? Who's the power behind him? Satan. All right. Satan is the power behind Antichrist. So both of them are seen there. And this is what you see happening here in Ezekiel 28, um, 12 through 19. It says here, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, think about that. Now, why would he be saying that to a human king? Was a human king ever in Eden, the garden of God? No. No, I mean, the only two people that were in Eden, the garden of God, was Adam and Eve, right? No one else was. They were... um, no one else was ever there. We don't even know where Eden is. But he says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. That doesn't sound like a human king, does it? doesn't sound like... Now, human kings may have precious stones, but they weren't certainly not in the garden of Eden. Then he mentions sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle... And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. What's he, what's he talking about here? It's uh, the beauty of this being. And he's drawing a metaphor of the most beautiful thing that the ancient world would see. What's the most beautiful thing they would be able to look at? Would be a multicolored, multifaceted, jewel-type thing. That's, that's what they, they, they could think of as being beautiful. And it's interesting, the same uh, metaphor is used to talk about the New Jerusalem, right? The Twelve Foundations. Now, when you get to heaven, is it going to be molecular 
diamond that we're seeing there? You know, carbon? Is it going to be the molecular structure of a diamond or a ruby or a topaz? Could be, but I think what John is doing is he's scrambling for words. He's seeing something so beautiful that he's trying to speak of it in terms that we can understand, that we can comprehend, that we can see and, and know what he's talking about. New Jerusalem is going to be a city built on a foundation of multicolored, multifaceted, brilliant, shining materials that look like rubies and sapphires and diamonds and all the different colors of the rainbow. They're all going to be there. And the right end is God is talking about Satan in those terms. He was a beautiful being. It doesn't mean Satan walked around with clothes of diamonds and rubies and sapphires, but when you looked at him, what did you see? Great beauty. Great beauty. Um, God did not create Satan evil and twisted and ugly and pitched fork and tail and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, even now, if Satan were to appear right here, he would be a being of immense beauty and wonder. We would all, we all wouldn't even know what to make of it. He'd be so beautiful. And then it's here. On the day that you were created... Now, wait a minute. Was the king of Tyre created? No, he was born. I mean, certainly, he was created in the sense that God created Adam and Eve and, and that, but... God did not do immediate creation on the king of Tyre. He did, though, on Satan. He, on the day you were created... And then listen, you were the, an anointed cher, guardian cherub. Anointed guardian cherub. Does that sound like a man? <coughs> now, what did the cherub do? <coughs> they guard the throne of God, right? The cherub being guard the throne of God. So what was Satan's original design and purpose? To guard the throne of God. And not only that, he was the number one guardian of the throne of God. He was the number one angel. He was the highest of all created angels. He was the anointed... Some of your translations have the anointed cherub that covers. He um, said, so I placed you... You were on the holy mountain of God. What's that talking about? Heaven, the very presence of God, the very throne of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walk. When do we see stones of fire again? Book of Revelation. Around the throne of God. Alright? This is not talking about a human person. This is not talking about a human personage. This is talking about Satan who is behind the human personage. But Satan nevertheless is talking about him. It says here, You are blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Was that true of any human being? No. Possibly Adam. Adam was blameless. He certainly was. Um, but this is not talking about Adam here. It's talking about the king of Tyre. So you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Until unrighteousness was found in you. And we're going to talk about that in Isaiah 12. Uh, this is talking about Satan who was in the presence of God. He was around the throne of God. He was the anointed cherub. He was the number one angel, the number one created being in the universe. His job was to protect the throne of God, to, to be right there in the very presence of God. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. What did God do when Satan fell? He cast him out of his presence. 
out of the throne of God. Now, he has access to heaven, does he not? So it's not saying he doesn't have access to heaven, but he does not have access to what? The throne of God, the very presence of God in the close, closeness that you see the cherubim have in heaven. And the, I destroyed you a guardian cherub from the midst of the stones of fire. This is talking about the throne of God in heaven. Then here, your heart was proud because of your beauty. What was Satan's great sin? Pride. Here, here he was. He was the greatest, the most beautiful being ever created. And we don't know why, but somehow that went to his head. And he said, you know, instead of flying around the throne, instead of saying, holy, 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 I, I'd like to sit on it. And I'm so beautiful that I should get adoration just like God is getting adoration. It was pride. And where did he say this? He said this in his heart, right? And that's one of the most important things. Uh, sin occurs in the heart before it occurs externally, Right? All of us here sin, but our sin begins not in an external act. It begins in a heart attitude that leads us down to the external act. It always starts in the heart. And that's why the Bible says we need to guard our heart, for out of it are the issues of life. The heart of man is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. You've got to look at your heart. And here Satan was proud because of his great beauty. This is not talking about a human king. This is talking about Satan. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. You profaned your place. Because of your beauty, you took that which was not yours. So I brought you out. I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. What is the end of Satan? He's going to be cast down below anything else. People are going to hiss at him. They're going to look at him and they're going to, to shake their heads in awe at his destruction. Why? Because he was the closest to the throne of God. He, and this is the thing here. Um, the closer you are to God when you, and you sin, the more of a devastation it is, Right? Satan was the highest created being in the universe. He was the number one anointed cherub. He was the one that guarded the throne of God. He, he was the closest being ever created that was near God. And yet, he fell because of his pride, because of his beauty, because of the splendor of his own glory, he says. It says in the Bible, because of that, he fell. And people are going to stand in awe and they're going to hiss at this one who was closest to the throne of God and yet fell. God cast him out of his presence because of his sin, because of his pride. He wanted to be God, and God says, no, you cannot be that. Now, on the issue of theodicy, remember we talked about theodicy, the origin of sin? When God created Satan, did God know that Satan would do this? Well, yeah, God knows everything, right? Did God, did, did God make Satan do this? No, Satan did it of his own sinful choices. He decided that he wanted to sit on the throne of God. He wanted to be there. And, and when you look at Satan here, you see, you know, when, when you look at this thing, you see he's full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. 
um, when God created Satan, I mean, he, he, that was his best, that was his masterpiece. Think about it. That was God's creative masterpiece. The most beautiful being he ever created. Number one. He was in the Eden, the Garden of God. Well, that's certainly not a human king. That has to be Satan, because we know Satan was in Eden, right? Tempted Eve. He seemed to be created for music. Uh, he seemed to be created to, to praise God. Music is going to be a part of heaven. And if you think we're raucous down here, wait till you get to heaven. All right, You're going to really be raucous up there. But we'll be perfect. We won't worry about music styles then. Um, the chosen cherub. What does it mean he was the chosen cherub? Of all the cherubim that surrounded the throne of God, he was the number one cherub that was there. But his heart was lifted up in pride because of his beauty. This is the thing we have to be careful of. You know, the more God has blessed us, the more God gives us, the more talent we have, the easier it is to fall into pride, is it not? To somehow think, well, you know, I'm pretty great. I'm pretty, I'm a wonderful person. I mean, man, the throne, the, the kingdom of God would come to a screeching halt if it were not for me. And we have this idea that somehow we are needed, we are necessary. We are not. We are not. I'm just thinking about this today, and you know, I've been witnessing to a Mormon lady at church, or not at church. Hopefully, they're not here, right? Mormon lady at work. Um, and uh, the sad thing is, I was thinking about this. I said, you know, the people that go to heaven are the people that know they don't belong there, and the people that don't go to heaven are the people that think they deserve heaven. You ever think about that? You know, I talked to this lady and she, uh, she firmly believes that you know, God owes her one because of her supposed character, her righteousness, her good works, whatever. Because she did the things that she was supposed to do in their system. That somehow God owes her one. God, God doesn't owe us anything, does He? Owes us hell, doesn't He? And the people who go to heaven are the ones who look in the mirror and say, you know, you're nothing but a sinful sinner saved by grace. You're not, you don't deserve God's grace you don't deserve anything good from God, but for whatever reason, He has shown grace to you, and all I can do is fall down and say, thank you, Father, for redeeming me. I don't deserve heaven. And the people who go to heaven are the ones who realize they don't deserve it. Isn't that what you see in Christ's ministry? Right? He said the sinners and the prostitutes get into heaven before you do. Why? Because they realize they don't belong there. And God says, that, that's what you need to understand. The second you think you deserve heaven or you deserve something good from God, you're on the wrong track. And Satan, because of his great beauty and pride, thought he was something special, something important in and of himself. And no, he wasn't. And what did God do? God cast him out from his throne. God cast him away from his presence. He lost his anointed place. And eternally, he's going to be consigned to if you want to think about it, God's garbage dump of eternity, which is the lake of fire. That's where he's going to go. Let's look at another passage here. Isaiah 14. These are the two major passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah 14. In this case... uh, Isaiah is addressing the king of Babylon. All right, the king of Babylon. Now, um, for a gold star, when was Isaiah written? Anybody know when it was written? About what year? 
Any guesses? About 720 B.C. Somewhere around 720. When Isaiah was writing Isaiah in about 720 B.C., Babylon was not the world power. What was the world power at that time? Anybody know? No? No? Begins with an A. Assyria was the world power at the time that Isaiah was written. Remember Isaiah, the king of Assyria, came down to Jerusalem to take it and 186,000 died. That was the king of Assyria. Babylon was just a small, minor, little outpost over there. It wasn't anything big. But prophetically, what did God know? Yeah, in 100 years, it would be the empire. In 612, it did become the world empire. So it was 100 years, over 100 years after Isaiah received this prophecy, Babylon became the dominant power in the world. And in verse 12 here, it says, How are you fallen from heaven, O morning star, O Lucifer? The morning star. How have you fallen from heaven? How are you cut down to the ground who laid the nations low? How God has humbled you who you in turn humbled nations. Now, who, in Isaiah 14, 13 and 14, this is a larger section on the um, oracle against Babylon. A lot of times in the prophets, they had different oracles against nations around about them. This is in the middle of the oracle against Babylon. And Isaiah is talking to the king of Babylon who... Now, remember Nebuchadnezzar was his great sin. Pride, right? What did he do? He walked around and said, Isn't this great Babylon that I built for my glory? And God said, Okay, you're an animal for seven years. All right. I believe, by the way, we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven because God went to a whole lot of trouble with him. But um, it was pride. And, and in the middle of this oracle against Babylon, all of a sudden, Isaiah goes beyond the king of Babylon and talks to the one behind him, which is Satan. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, dawn and star? This is not referring to a human king, is it? No, this is not a human king at all. You who said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven above the stars of God. What are the stars of God we're referenced to? Angels. So what does Satan do? Satan said, I'm going to send above the stars of God. I don't want to be a star of God. I'm going to send above them. What he's saying is, I want to be the one in charge of the angels. I'm going to be the one that orders them around. I'm the most beautiful one of all of them. After all, I'm the best looking. I'm the greatest. I'm the most perfect in beauty. He said in his heart, he said, I will set my throne on high. What's that reference to? God, I'm going to take God's place. I will sit on the mount of assembling the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. What is Satan's great desire? To be like God. To be like God. And you know, that's one of the things, I want you, just as an aside, this is a little freebie I toss in here. Remember our video on the Word Faith Movement? What do they want to be? Like God. In fact, they tell you that they have sovereignty like God does. What do the Mormons want to be? Like God. 
Folks, if you want to be like God, you're in the same line that Satan is in. There's God and then there's everything else. And what did Satan want? Satan did not want to merely circle the throne of God. He did not merely want to say, holy, holy, holy. He merely did not want to lead the worship of heaven. He wanted to be the one worshipped. And that was the origin of sin in the universe. When Satan decided to rebel. And by the way, what did he sell Eve? Going to be like God. Knowing good and evil. And you know what? The lie has not changed. It's not changed. Oh, it's taken a different form. It's morphed into this thing and that thing. But by and large, what we are being sold today is you can be like God. And uh, the Bible says, no, you're not. Right. And he said, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Now, could he have done that? Could Satan have done that? Well, he's became the prince and power of the air through man's rebellion, right? But who has veto power over that? Well, God does. God. So, this is the other thing to understand, folks, in all, in all of our discussions, and this is something that, that has really you know, shaped my thinking through many years. God is absolutely, 100% sovereign. Nothing in this universe escapes His notice. Nothing's going to happen apart from His permissive will. And we can rest assured in that. That is a comforting thing, is it not? To realize that no matter what Satan throws at us, he's not going to be able to derail the plan and purpose of God. He cannot win. He may be deluded to think he can pull something off, but he is not going to pull this thing off. God is absolutely in charge. And when Satan said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven, God says, no, you won't. In fact, I'm going to throw you out of heaven. Now, he lost heaven now as his permanent place of residence. Someday he will lose it totally and he will be in the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And in verse 15, it says this, but you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. You've gone from the highest height to the lowest low. You've gone from the closest you could ever be to God to the farthest you could ever be from God. And it says, those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? Now we're starting to come back to the king of Babylon. Starting to look back at him. But behind the king of Babylon is Satan, right? Satan is going to be, this is the thing to understand, Satan is going to be an inmate in the lake of fire. He's not going to run it. He's not going to be the head warden. His demons are not the ones who do the torturing. They are going to be tortured. They are inmates. Who's in charge of hell, by the way? God is. Specifically, Jesus is, right? I have the keys of, the key of hell, death and hell. Who has that? The, the, the picture of the keys is someone who controls it. If you have the key, you can open the door, close the door. Who has the keys of hell? Christ does. He's the warden, if you want to think about it in those terms. So Satan is not going to pull this thing off. Satan is not going to win. Satan was closest to the throne of God. He was created in beauty. He was the most beautiful being ever in existence apart from God. And yet, because of his pride, because of his, his great glory that he thought he had, 
he fell. And it started in his heart. It started with him thinking in his heart. Yes? But he knows his outcome. He knows what's going to happen. So why would he continue this? Spite. You know, why would he try to repent? Spite. I mean, I don't know. You know, again, I don't know how we can psychoanalyze Satan or anything. You know, why does he do what he does? Satan is full of hatred. And hatred is irrational, right? I mean, it's an irrational hatred against God. And, you know, perhaps his idea is, well, if I can't win this, I'm going to destroy as much as I can going down. Um, I'm going to take as many souls to hell with me as I possibly can. Um, evil is irrational. Evil doesn't make sense. All right? And in his case, he is certainly evil. And that's the thing to understand about Satan. Satan is so irascibly evil. I want to use that word. He is so evil. He's so evil to the core that you can't believe a word he says. You can't. Because even when he's saying the truth, he's really not, right? He's the arch deceiver. He, 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 will not, he will never tell you the right thing. Why do you think that the Old Testament pronounces the death penalty on anyone who goes after mediums and spirits? Because you're never going to get the right answer. You're never going to get that. Ever. You'll get some twisted form of the truth. And that's why Paul cast the demon out of that woman or that gal in Philippi. Why? Because although she was saying the truth then, when he left, what would she be saying? Lies. And everybody would be following her, right? That's how Satan operates. you got to understand, Satan is not going to tell you the truth. He, and again, I, t- I told you, you know, those Jehovah Witnesses come to your door, they don't say, we're on our way to hell, we want to take you with us. <laughs> They don't do that. The Mormons don't do that. The Buddhists don't do that. They come join our monastery. We're all going to hell in contemplation. Come with us. They don't do that. That's how Satan operates. He makes you think you're headed one way when really you're headed somewhere else. And that's the broad gate prophets in Matthew 7, right? They stand at the head of the broad way and both signs say heaven. The broad way says heaven. The narrow way says heaven, but only one destination will get you there. And on the Broadway, you don't have to repent of your sins. You don't have to do any of that stuff. Oh, you can just come as you are. You know, God will love you and He'll, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe. You know, God is open-minded. He's certainly loving. Come on with us. And they're saying, let's all go to heaven. And what they find themselves doing is going to hell. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. And that's what Christ said. If you don't come in by, the, by me, who is the door of the sheepfold, you're a thief and a robber. You want in, you come through the way of the cross, you don't come any other way. That's evangelistic preaching. But look, folks, that's, there's one way to heaven. And Satan would have you believe all roads lead there. All roads lead there. And all roads do not lead there. And when somebody comes along and says... Look, you know, you don't have to really believe in Jesus. Um, God, God's open enough to let someone else in. You know right away that they are a broad gate prophet and you need to stay away from them. Yeah. They're all like lemmings off a cliff. Yeah. I, 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 I,
you know. Well, see, yeah. Well, see, Christ said the way is broad. What does that mean, broad? It's wide. You know, and, and it's easy to get on it, and and you know, it doesn't. It doesn't cost anything to get on the broad way. There's no price to pay. And the way is narrow and difficult and hard that leads to eternal life. There's a price to pay for it. It's not a broad superhighway. It's the back way. And Christ said here, there's few that find it. Now, do the math in your head. What does that mean? When Christ says few find it, He's saying, quite honestly, that the number of people in heaven are far less than the number of people not in heaven. Right? And so when somebody comes along and says, well, you know, heaven's just full of everybody and all anybody who is sincere, now all of a sudden you know what? Wait. That's a broad gate prophet. That's one who stands at the broad way and says there's no price. Listen, Christ, it's an, and when Christ evangelized people, He raised the bar, didn't He? He says, you want me? It's going to cost you your father, your sister, your mother, your brother, even your own life. If you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me, don't bother. And everybody knew what the cross was. What was the cross in those days? It was the cross beam that you carried on the way to your execution. If you're not willing to pick up a cross and follow me and die, don't follow me. If you're going to put your hand to the plow and look back, forget it. You want to go home and say bye to mom and dad? Forget it. You want eternal life, it's going to cost you everything you have. You can't have both. And what we have today is we want, we want eternal life, we want everything and. We want, we want eternal life and our stuff, and this, and that, and other things. And Christ says, no, it doesn't operate that way. And when the rich young ruler came, what did Christ tell him to do? Go sell it all. Now, is that the way you really get to heaven? You sell everything and become poor? In a... In a figurative sense, yes. In a practical sense, no. That wasn't the point that Christ was making to the guy. You know, the way you get into heaven is you buy your way in. But what was that guy unwilling to do? He wasn't willing to give it all up. And then you have the parable right of the pearl, great price. What did the guy do? He sold everything to buy the pearl. When he found a treasure in the field, what did he do? He sold everything to buy the field. And Paul in Philippians 3 says, When I saw the excellency of Christ, I scrapped everything I was banking on. And Paul said, You know, I was banking on quite a bit. You know, I was a Hebrew, the Hebrew, right? I was a Benjamite, the best tribe. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was a Pharisee. When it came to the zeal of the law, there was nobody like me. He says, When I saw Christ, I counted it all but human excrement for the excellency of knowing Christ. Look, folks, you don't get to heaven by Christ and. It's Christ alone. And there's an abandonment of everything you're banking on. And when somebody comes along and says, you can have heaven, God is broad-minded, you don't have to go down the narrow way, you know you're listening to a false prophet. And Satan is behind that. Satan is behind that. Satan wants freedom, right? What did he tell Eve? God's restrictive. You know, I mean, if he... God's just, He just doesn't want you to have fun. He's restrictive. And Paul says, you know, those who are in sin, they think they have freedom. Do they? Do they really have freedom? 
They're slaves to that. You're a slave to sin or a slave to God. Pick your choice. It doesn't matter, but pick one of them. And if you're not a slave to God, you're a slave to sin. And Satan says, I want to be the one who's on the throne. I want to be the one who is exalted. And really, what is sin? Sin is placing my will over God's will, is it not? Isn't that really what sin is? It's not what God wants. It's what I want. So when these word of faith preachers get on and say, you know, it really doesn't have anything to do with God's will. It's what is you want. It's your will that matters. What are you listening to? Broadgate prophet. Don't go there. It's not about your will. It's about God's will. Christ, what did he say? I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In the Trinity, they submit to one another. And yet, we have people who they said, I don't want to do what God wants me to do. I want to do my own thing. I have a better idea on how to work this out. That's usually what happens, right? We have a better idea. See, Abraham and Sarah had a better idea on how to get the heir, right? And so what happens? You get the Arabs. We'll go and have Hagar go in and now you have Ishmael and that's what you have. You have the whole Arab mess over there because of that. Because uh, Abraham said, well, we need to give God a hand on this. He can't pull it off on his own. We're going to help him out. Whenever you help God out, you mess things up all the time. But Satan has his origin in the very presence of God. He was the anointed Arab cherub that covers and yet he fell. What does the Bible say about him? He is a real person. What does that mean? He possesses intelligence, memory, will, and emotions. That's what the definition of being is, right? He is a sentient being. He's not a force. He's not some impersonable negative force in the universe. See, that's what a lot of Eastern mystical religions say, that there's this mystical force of good and a mystical force of evil, the yin and the yang, right? The white and the dark the positive and the negative. Satan is not the negative energy in the universe. God did not create the universe with negative in it. That's what we call philosophical dualism, right? Remember what we, many, probably a year ago, we were talking about philosophical dualism. Good and evil exist and they are equal to one another. And that the, the war or the, the struggle in the universe is between good and evil who are, that are equal in power to each other. That's not the case. That's not how God created the universe. God created the universe as something good. Evil came in. But it's not equal in power to God. God is a, uh, Satan is a real person. He possesses intelligence. He has... And, and by the way, you got to understand something about Satan. He is extremely smart. How do you know that? Because he was the number one being created, right? He's the number one being created in the universe. He has more brains in his little pinky than all of humanity has put together. If he has a pinky, you understand what I'm trying to get at there. It's a metaphor, but he is smart. And that is why one of the, one of the dangers, and we're going to talk about this when we get to the spiritual warfare concept, is when you, try, when you say, I'm going to go and confront Satan, you are so badly outmatched that you are in trouble if you think that somehow you're going to be able to figure out what it is that he is really up to. Because you can't. He can, he can deceive you beyond deception. And, and when you think you're doing the right thing, you're really doing the wrong thing, playing into his hands. That's how he operates. He is a deceiver. 
And we are so easily deceived as human beings because we are so limited in our understanding and our insight and we're so limited in our experience. Satan's been around this for like 6,000 years, folks, pulling this stuff off. He's very bright at it. He is, a, he is extremely intelligent. And he can, he can outwit you without even trying to outwit you. He has a memory. What does it mean? He, he's quoting Scripture to Christ, isn't he? You realize that Satan can quote the Bible? All of it? Word perfect. In all of its versions, probably. He knows the Bible. But what does he do to it? Twist it. He, he, he quotes it and then he twists it a little bit. Right? And that's what you see, by the way, when Peter says in Peter in Second Peter 3 that the epistles of our beloved Apostle Paul who some twist to their own destruction. What do the Broadgate prophets do? They take the truth of the Scripture and they twist it a little bit. But they twist it just enough to produce death, to produce destruction. And that's why you have to have such a high view of Scripture because they'll twist it. And we have Scripture twisters out there today that do this. They quote verses, they quote passages of Scripture. I was just reading one, um, a guy, what's his name? I'm so bad with names it hurts. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. It's sort of a funky name. But he was one of these guys behind the New Thought, which is behind Christian science and all of that. And I was reading some of his writings. Emmett Fox is his name. Go out and look at him up on the Internet. Emmett Fox. And uh, I was reading some of his stuff and interspersed with all of his drivel about, you know, you create your own reality and all this kind of stuff. He's got verses tossed in there. I mean, he's got quite a bit of Scripture tossed in there. Now, if you're not, if you're not up on this and you don't quite... You know, you're a young Christian or you're a young believer and you don't quite understand the Scripture all the way. What are you, what are you tempted to, to think? This guy's right. I mean, he uses God talk, Jesus talk. And that's the other thing. You know, just because somebody uses God talk, Jesus talk, and Bible talk doesn't mean it's right. Remember, Satan uses the same vocabulary but a different dictionary. He uses the same words, but he means something totally different than what, he, than what we understand it to be. He's a deceiver. He has a memory. He's smart. And he possesses a will. And what is his will? His will is to thwart God, to do everything he can to destroy that which God loves. He's the arch enemy of our souls. He wants, and, and this, is, this is the thing to understand. Understand where he's really playing this. Satan is not out to get you to commit personal acts of sin because does he need to do that to get you to sin? No. You're fallen. You do very well without his help. But where he really wants to focus his energy is on what? Deception. Deceiving. Where do you think all of this weird thinking comes from? Where do you think the message that everybody goes to heaven comes from? Do you think that comes from the Bible? It's doctrines of demons, right? And again, do you think Joseph Smith just dreamed up Mormonism one day? No. It came from where? Doctrines of devils. That's where it comes from. He's behind false systems of belief because if he can get people ensnared in that, he's won. And there are many people who are on their way to eternal destruction and they think they're on their way to heaven. And they're not. He has emotions. What's that? Desire, pride, wrath. All these are emotions. 
in uh, Revelation 12, 12, he is cast out of heaven. And what does he do? He goes against the world with great fury and wrath because his time is short. He comes after us, after us in the sense of humanity, because he has a short period of time. He is malevolent beyond malevolent. We can't understand just how evil and wicked he is. He's prideful, right? One of the things it says in 1 Timothy 3.6 is you need to be sure not to put a man too quickly into the office of spiritual leadership lest he fall into the snare of the devil. What was the snare of the devil? Pride. The last thing you want to do is get some young Christian and make him a spiritual leader because he thinks that he is something that he is not. People who are in leadership need to realize they don't belong there. <laughs> if you think you belong in leadership, you probably don't. It's pride. Don't fall into pride. He possesses great organizational ability. How do you know that? Well, he got a third of the angels to follow him, didn't he? Think about that. He talked one-third of the holy angels into following him in his rebellion. Now, how many is that? A lot. A lot. An awful lot. Innumerable. We, now, is there a number on it? Of course, there's a number on it, but it's so high that we can't number them. The point is that he, he, had, he has millions, if not billions, of angels follow him in his rebellion. He's going to organize the last revolt. What's that? Revelation 27 through 9. Let me tell you how good he is. Let me, let me tell you how, how deceitful he is. Think about living in a world of 1,000 years of absolute, total peace. No wars. Right? Living in conditions much like the Garden of Eden. There's no famines. There's no earthquakes. There's no diseases like we know today that's, that kill millions of people. And not only that, God Himself, the Creator, is going to be ruling. And what happens at the end of the 1,000 years? Satan comes out and what does he get? An innumerable company of people to follow him in rebelling against God. Go figure that one out. How do you talk someone who has known peace and prosperity for a thousand years to rebel against God? I don't know, but he pulls it off. How does he do that if we're supposed to be... I mean, I, I'm a little confused on We're supposed to be glorified before that... It's not us. It's humans that are born during that time. Oh, so there will be like marriage and stuff. Yeah, in the, in the, in the kingdom, in the millennium, there's going to be marriage and people are going to, you know... People are going to live on the earth. We're going to rule and reign with Christ, but there's going to be millions and billions of people on the earth at that time. Yes. And Christ is going to rule. He's going to reign and rule. Um, it's going to be a time of great peace, of prosperity. You know, that's that, you know the, the psychologist comes along and says, well, you know, the problem with our world today is you know, our society is so corrupt and blah, 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 dribble, 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 and all that stuff. And look, you know, when you give man the perfect condition, right? You give him perfection, you give him the best of all environments. You meet every one of his needs. And what is he still at the bottom of his heart? He'll mess it up. Think about it. Satan, Satan, not Satan, Adam and Eve were in the most blessed, perfect place ever known to humanity. And what do they do? They'll mess it up. 
Christ was in the middle of the Judean wilderness, tempted, and he did not fail. Um, the final rebellion shows that even after a thousand years of peace and giving mankind everything mankind needs, truly almost a heaven on earth, men still, at their heart, will rebel if given the opportunity. And what does Satan do? Satan is released for a short season. He goes out to deceive the nations of the earth. And he gets a following that is millions, if not billions, to follow him. That's a scary thought. And that's what it says in Matthew chapter 24. It says, if it, if it were possible, he would deceive who? The elect. But it's not possible. See, that's the wonderful thing about this. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are protected from deception. If it were possible, he would deceive. Yeah. What's that? If you are uh, saved, that you are protected from deception at the election, because when the people yeah. are in the millennial kingdom, God will purify their hearts and make them not sin. My question is, where do these sinners come from? Okay, that's a good. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, it's it's inferred in that, and and um, when we do the 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 class on eschatology, we'll talk about it in depth. But what we see when you go into the millennium, who gets into the millennium? Who who makes it in as in their human form, non glorified form? There's going to be us. We're going to be glorified. We're going to be rule and reign with Christ. But there's going to be some humanity that gets in. Okay, they're the, they're their glorified beings. I'm talking about the people alive on the earth. Yeah, they survived the tribulation. The humans. These are the people. That, the not. Of course, we understand that there's the glorified the glorified people. And you're right. That's people from every dispensation, every time. Noah's going to be there. Abraham's going to be there. We're going to be there. All right. So you say? Are you saying? I believe there's a difference between the body of Christ and the Old Testament church. I don't believe they're going to come back as the body of Christ. They are not the body of Christ, but they are the elect. You're right. So they'll come back as just like they were. No, I think they will be. They will come back in a glorified form. They are not the body of Christ. You're correct. There's two separate entities. There's the body of Christ, which is the church, is a new, distinct entity. All right, we are part of the body of Christ. There are those that are um, in the Old Testament who are not part of the body of Christ. They're still redeemed, and I think. Um, Daniel chapter 12 talks about their resurrection. In Daniel 12, they will be resurrected. So, when the millennium starts, you have basically... So they're not, you're saying they're not... These that died not in Christ, but believing in the revelation that God had given to them will not be part of the people living in the millennial kingdom. No. As normal people. As normal people, yes. They will be there. They will be there, but not as normal people. So, there's three entities. If you want, well, there's three entity, there's three entities, two of which are almost alike, and we'll sort this all out. But, but I, I believe that there you have the people who are alive at the end of the tribulation. Now, not everyone who's alive at the end of the tribulation gets in, right? Because what is there? There's a judgment at the end of the tribulation, and only those who are redeemed, who are saved, born again, whatever, they get in. The rest of the rebellious ones are cut off. 
Um, two-thirds of Israel, it says, is going to be cut off. One-third of Israel will come in, Zechariah 14. Um, in, in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, you have the judgment of the nations. And some Gentiles get in, most do not. But if you, at the beginning of the millennium, and we'll sort all of this out in greater detail because we'll work through it. It's a, it's, a, it's, a hard, it's a complex topic to talk about. But I believe at the beginning of the millennium, you have people who are in their physical mortal bodies who are redeemed. They are born again. They are truly saved. They will not be deceived. They are true. Because again, salvation is an irreversible thing. All right? But they're going to have children. And those children are going to have children. And those children are going to have children. And they're not going to be, they're not going to be redeemed. There still needs to be a personal acceptance of Christ. There needs to be a personal um, acceptance of salvation. All right? And there's going to be millions of them born. And that's where this comes from. Yeah. You, you said, you made a statement that salvation is irreversible. Do you believe that? Yes, I believe once... Once all dispensations, once you are born again, truly born again, you cannot be unborn again, because that goes with the election of God. We use the term "born again" in the New Covenant. We use that term. Christ used that with the rich young ruler, right? Born again. So you're right. Were, were the Old Testament saints saved in the sense that we are? And were they saved? Yes, I believe they were. I do. I believe they were. I believe Noah was Noah was eternal. David. I believe David was eternally saved. Once you once you are truly born again, once you are redeemed, and I like to use the word redeemed. I think it's a better word. It's a better word to use because it's mixed up. I hear people say, "Well, Noah was saved. How was Noah saved? He didn't know about Christ, right? All he knew is that God told him to build a boat. He said, "Okay, I'll do that," and God credited to him for righteousness. How about Abraham? What did he know? I'll make a great nation. Okay, I believe that. And God says, okay. He credited him for righteousness. Um, he was redeemed. These are all redeemed. We are redeemed, but we have the full picture. We know all the information. We're going down a little rabbit trail here, but you know, it sort of fits into what we're talking about here. The question is, where do the unredeemed come from in the millennium? They come from the, they are the progeny of those redeemed people who enter it. All right, they are redeemed people who enter the millennium who are truly saved, but they have kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, etc. And it's those that are subject to this deception. Okay, so we go in, we're glorified. Yes. But our children may not be. No, that's not what you're saying. If you're immortal, we'll sort this all out when we get to eschatology. All of us in here, if you're born again right in here right now, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're going to enter the millennium in a glorified form. The rapture is going to, we're going to be changed in a moment in the twinkle of an eye. We're going to receive our glorified bodies. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. If you're in here and you're not a believer, all right, and the, the rapture happens today and you live for the next seven years and make it through and you're truly saved, you enter the millennium in your normal mortal body. You will be saved, but you will still be mortal. And it's those mortals that enter the millennium where you have the progeny that comes that rebels in this final rebellion. And we'll sort this all out in a little greater detail. We're not going to skip all of this stuff. We're going to talk about it. 
Um, the problem is we talk about all of it every time we mention it, we'll never get done. <laughs> but yeah, we are going to talk about that. Um, but regardless of where they come from, there's a great rebellion at the end. He, he schnookers millions, if not billions of people in rebelling against a perfect kingdom, a perfect king. He's good. He's really good at this, at this rebellion. He subjected Job to many trials. Look at poor old Job. I mean, one after another, right? Satan is organized. Satan has great organizational abilities. He's extremely smart. He's able to rally the unredeemed angels to him. And you've got to understand, again, about the unredeemed angels we've talked about. Although they are generally follow Satan, they also have their own individual agendas and wills, don't they? So it's sort of like herding cats. But he's able to pull it off. Satan is great has great organizational abilities. And this is seen in his ability to organize great rebellions against God. What are some of his names? And one of the things in the Bible to help you understand what a being is like or a person is like is look at their name. That, that sort of gives you a hint. If you've done a study of the names of God, we can sort of understand what God is like by looking at the different names that he goes by in the scripture. And Satan is no different. He's called the devil or slanderer at least 35 times. What's a slander? What does that imply? Yeah. Satan is a slanderer. Satan is always putting the worst spin on things. Right? So here's a question. When you slander, who are you acting like? Yeah, think about that one next time you want to say a juicy little bit of gossip. You're acting like Satan, the devil. He's a slanderer. Uh, Satan accuses us before the throne of God constantly, does he not? Now, does God need to know when I sin? No. Nah, he knows everything, right? So he knows. He, he's not going to... Satan is not up there giving God information that God would otherwise not have. What Satan is up there is saying, how dare you love Alan? Look at what he did today. You'd never believe what he did when that lady pulled out in front of him. <laughs> All right? You never believe that. God says, I know exactly what he did. It's covered by the blood. And Christ is there. And a great picture in the New Testament is Christ is there as my advocate. He basically says to the Father, look, I paid the penalty. And the Father says, case dismissed. It's got to be frustrating being Satan. You know, every time he makes an accusation, it just like goes nowhere. What's the greatest example of him accusing someone in the Bible? Job, Right? He shows up in heaven. God says, where have you been? He said, oh, walking to and fro and up and down. Well, God knows where he was. God's getting him to talk. And God says, hey, what do you think of Job? Yeah, right. You know, the reason he loves you is because, well, look at all the goodies you've given him. Of course he's going to love you. He's not stupid. He's not going to bite the hand that feeds him. That's in the Schaefer translation of the whole book of Job. And uh, God says, well, I'll tell you what. You can take away everything you have, just don't touch him. How long did it take Satan to take away everything Job had? Not very long, did it? And then, and then of course, another day comes and you know, Satan's back up in heaven. God says, well, what do you think about Job? He's, he's doing all right so far, right? Saying, yeah, yeah, right. You know, take away his money, his wealth, his possession. But I'll tell you what, you touch his body, then he'll curse you to the face. And God said, okay, you can do that, just don't kill him. Now, think about this. How bad did Satan make it on Job? Bad. Super bad. All right. Job, Satan could do anything to Job short of 
killing him. So how miserable was Job? As miserable as you could possibly get without dying. He's a slanderer. What was he accusing Job of? Yeah, Job just follows you because of all the good. He's all, of course he's going to follow you. I mean, look at what you've given the guy. And it's interesting, I've heard someone say that really the message of the book of Job is the faith of those who are truly born again is an unredeemed, is an unassailable faith. It's an unassailable faith. Where do you get your faith in God? Where does it come from? You? God. He gives me the faith to believe. My faith is not of my own human, divine, uh, human origin. If it were, I would lose it the first time I have a problem. It comes from God. And God is telling Satan through the life of Job that those who are truly redeemed, those who truly I have given faith to, those who truly believe in me, no matter what happens to them, they will not ultimately deny me. Because it doesn't come from them. It's not their faith. The faith that you have to believe in God does not come from you. It comes from God who grants you the faith to believe. And because of that, it cannot fail. And I love it because if it was up to me, I'm done for, right? I'm done for. It's not up to me. He's he's a slander. He's the adversary. That's really used a lot. Satan is adversary. What does it mean? He's against you. He's out to get us. And especially those who are born again, right? Those who are believers, those who are redeemed. He's out to, to get them. He's against everything that God is for. <laughs> everything that God wants, Satan doesn't want. He's God's adversary. He's an active one at it as well. Ephesians 2.2 2 says he's the prince of the power of the air. What does that mean? The world system. When you look at the world, what is the world system? What is that? We talk about the world. What are we talking about? Society. The values, right? When you look in the society today, what do they value? Money, power, prestige, looks, wealth, pride, all those things. Satan's behind that. And the Bible says if you're a friend of the world, whose enemy are you? God, you get to choose one. You want to be God's friend or do you want to be the world's friend? Who's behind? Why is it when we look at, you know, in our, a lot of Christians, they are disturbed when they look at our society and say, I don't understand why people are so against God. Well, what do you expect? What is, what is behind the thoughts and the principles and the values of our society? Satan is. That's where, that's where it is, folks. Yep. It comes from Satan. And see, again, you can stand up anywhere and say, I believe Jesus is a way to heaven. Nobody's upset about that, right? Jesus is a way to heaven? Yeah, he's a way to heaven. And yeah, okay, we'll go with that. You know, Buddha's a way too, and so is the. Yeah. They'll go along with that. But the second you stand up and say, Jesus is the way to heaven, right? Not what happens. Bigoted, narrow minded. Neanderthal, 
unenlightened, uneducated. And then you got the new atheists come along, who is a group of guys who say it's actually dangerous. They're actually advocating that it is dangerous and societal and dangerous to society for people to actually believe that there's a God. If they had their way, they would say anybody who believes in God should be institutionalized. It's dangerous to believe in God. Where does that come from? Satan, right? They, they attribute all of society's ills to Christianity and the belief in God. They look at, and it's just God, period. They look at, you know, Islam. Why is Islam so violent? They believe in God. Why is, if you get rid of God, get the concept of God out, humanity would be all right. That's their basic idea. There you go. God-free congregations. They base everything that with it, and they have a pastor, and they have things to group meetings, and people will come for self-helps and doing good things in community and being just like a church, but without God. Yeah. Well, that's that's a good question, but you know what? Satan has snookered some people into believing you can be a church and not have God. And you know what? Satan wants that too. Satan wants society to be good, right? As long as you don't believe in Christ, be as good as you want, right? Do all the good works you can. After all, you know, it's better than having a whole bunch of evil people around. Be good. Just don't believe in God. He's the prince that is behind the, the world system, the values of the world. Therefore, it's interesting when you, when you watch, you know, like American Idol and things like that, who's behind all of that? That's the world system, is it not? So why do you buy into that? Why do we as Christians buy into the world system? They're our enemy. We're not to be their friends. James says, if you're a friend of the world, you're the enemy of God. And Christ says, you know, if the world persecutes you, what are you surprised about? They hated me, they're going to hate you, right? But not everything We have to talk about what do you mean by the world. Is it wrong to wear clothes? I hope not, because we're all wearing clothes, right? <laughs> But it's wrong to value that, to make it a God. You see, you understand what's going on there? Is it wrong to go to a baseball game? No, it's all right to go to a baseball game, but there are people that worship the fame and the value. and the, that, That's the problem. And that, this is a very thin line. You point out a very good point. It's a very thin line. It's not, we're in the world. We've got to eat. We've got to work, Right? Um, I have to earn a good living so I can pay my expenses in life. That's, that's one thing when I understand that all that comes from God. But what Satan does with this world situation is he wants you to build a bigger house, a bigger car, more money, better clothes, more position, whatever. I mean, I, I look at look at it, I look at it this way. God's given me a nice house, and I thank Him for that. And I realize that's from His hand, and and I appreciate for what. And I was just honestly, seriously, I went to sleep thinking about this last night. 
I want to I want to worship the giver, not the gift. All right. Um, I want to honor the giver, not the gift. I have a nice car. I'm appreciative for that. I thank God for it when I drive it, and I have I thank God that I have a nice car and a nice little truck that I drive, and I thank God for His provision. But it comes from Him. I don't worship the things. We have in today's societies you worship the things. You need the bigger car, the faster car, the bigger computer. That's my big thing, you know. No matter what computer you buy, a better one's out next week, right? So, and that's, the, that's what we have in society. We have the pursuit of stuff, the pursuit of things. And Satan is behind that. He's behind that pursuit of things. And Satan wants you to have nice things as long as you don't thank the giver who gave it to you. Enjoy a nice meal. Enjoy sitting on the back porch of a house. Enjoy the beautiful weather. Enjoy God's provisions knowing that it's from Him that you have it. That's okay. But once you take your focus off Him and you start wanting to amass more things, bigger things, and get your focus off God, then you become part of the world system. Yeah. Things become the God. And, that's, and part, of our, part of our economic issues right now is people bought and spent far above their means. Because we have this pressure, buy bigger, buy more, buy better. We're out of time. So uh, we'll pick this up next week. Uh, we'll finish Satan next week and then we're going to start spiritual warfare. Pulling it all together. Father, thank You for this time that we've had in Your Word. Open the truth to it. Help us to ponder the truths. Help us to understand them. And help us to not buy into the world system. Help us to see Satan for who he really is, the enemy of our souls. And then may we depend on You, Father, for our guidance and in life. We thank You for this time we've had to study in Christ's name. Amen.